Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files. Are you a feminist? Yes, absolutely. I'm a feminist because a feminist is someone who believes men and women should be equal Mm -hmm. and who believes that there's a lot more work to do to get there. An exclusive interview with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. His push for gender equality and his effort to close the pay gap. Why he mandated his cabinet be half women. Also, Trump, trade and trust. How Trudeau negotiates with President Trump. One of the things that served me very, very well through the 13 months of negotiations over the new NAFTA was that I don't negotiate in public. And we have strong conversations in private and we get to the right outcome for everyone. Plus, his defense of the free press. He calls journalism fundamental to any democracy around the world. Here's our exclusive interview with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Mr. Prime Minister, I appreciate you joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Bobby. So... Diversity. When I started asking for this interview two years ago, it was because I was at a dinner and heard you speaking about diversity and heard you speaking about a cabinet that was equal men and women. Today, it is gender balance, 17 women, 17 men. It was clearly intentional. Why did you do it? Uh, Well, first of all, before you can get to a cabinet that is gender balanced, It took a number of years of work recruiting great women and convincing them to run for politics, which isn't easy as it is. So when you think about getting to better gender diversity, you really realize you have to to do a lot of work building the pipeline towards that. But why do it was uh, fundamental to, to governing well. When you have a broader group of people with different perspectives, with different backgrounds, with different stories, with different life experiences, you're actually much better able to solve different problems and solve them in a way that is going to respond to the needs people have. We've known that for so long, and yet so many governments, including you know, our government in the United States, falls behind on that. I mean, when you look, in, Prime Minister, at the underrepresentation of women in the U.S. Congress... What do you think? Well, we have a similar underrepresentation in Canada's parliament. Uh, we're, we, we are nowhere near 50%. We're uh, nowhere near 40%. Right. Uh, we have to do a lot better. But I can't control the numbers in parliament. I can control the numbers in my cabinet. And, and modeling that leadership of making a determination that, yes, uh, it was 2015, we had to do that, was important. But also modeling that you get better government out of it, that it's not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do, is the message that is resonating more and more these past Can years. Can you give me an example of that, of what you've seen happen in the last few years because you brought in more women? Well, I, when, when we talk about putting a gender lens on issues, where you actually think about the gender implications of it, um, 
Take a pipeline, for example. You couldn't imagine that putting a gender lens on building a pipeline would actually be meaningful, except if you say, okay, you're building an infrastructure that's going through remote and rural areas. Uh, you're going to be descending a whole bunch of mostly male uh, construction workers on it. There are going to be societal impacts in yep. the small communities where they're. So can you make sure as you move forward on this decision that you're building in social supports and uh, a counter to some of the problems that might come uh, up? Are you a feminist? Yes, absolutely. I'm a feminist because a feminist is someone who believes men and women should be equal mm -hmm. and who believes that there's a lot more work to do to get there. Who or what made you a feminist? Um, my father taught me about the importance of fundamental rights, of defending everyone's basic rights, inalienable rights. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know that I would have ever called him a feminist because he was of a very different generation. My mom made me a feminist. My, my wife makes me a better feminist. But I've been someone who has understood uh, the importance of uh, defending um, everyone's mm -hmm. fair chance to succeed. There is an interesting story I'm hoping you can share uh, with everyone watching about what your wife taught you about gender equality and feminism when it comes to your kids. Yeah. I, I at one point, uh, said, to, said to Sophie, my wife, that it was really important to me that uh, we raise our daughter, uh, mm -hmm. Ella Grace, to be a feminist. Mm -hmm. And she said, yes. And your sons, because I have two sons as well. Uh, and she, I, I said, Oh, oh yeah, I guess I need to raise them to be feminists as well, where you can have a world in which our daughters believe they can do anything, mm -hmm. but in which our sons also believe that our daughters can do and be anything and will be allies to them. That's, that's really how we have to raise our families. You talk to your sons about that? I do. I do. Absolutely. And they're 11 and 4, so there's still uh, work to be done, but uh, yes. So the Harvard Political Review just, just last month um, reported on some polling data internal, internally in Canada that showed that you have lost a bit of male support since your election. And what the pollster inferred from that was that there's, quote, a tacit assumption that they, meaning men, are not a priority. That thinking that some have, that sort of, uh, as women rise up, it is man down. Oh, what, what, I, do you, what do you make of that? I can understand worries that people have any time there's a status quo that is challenged. But what we've seen time and time again is when you have more fairness, more equality, you actually create better prosperity, more opportunity for everyone. And to look at... Uh, defending women's rights as a women's issue is not seeing the big picture because it's a societal issue. It's an issue for all of us. When uh, women have every chance to succeed and contribute, um, the entire, in, entire company or community or country does better. And it's about reducing those barriers that really makes a huge difference. Let's talk about what's actually happening because it was just a week or so ago that equal pay legislation was tabled here in Canada that you put forth. And that would close the pay gap uh, between men and women um, in, federal, in federal jobs. How did you realize there was such a need for actual legislation uh, to do that? And how do you make sure it happens? I mean, I know there is a commissioner who has a lot of power. You can audit, et cetera. But how do you make sure it really happens? 
Well, I mean, the first thing is to recognize that there is a problem. Sure. Uh, in Canada, uh, women make an average of 88 cents to the dollar. Uh, in the U.S., I think it's even lower than that. Mm -hmm. So there is a problem in that women aren't being paid what their true value is, as mm -hmm. if they were men. Uh, if they, uh, it, 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 you know, um, but at the same time, um, we're not getting the full economic participation or success out of women, and that's lowering our, our outcomes as a society. So uh, to recognize that for jobs of equal worth, uh, women should be paid as much as men uh, is something we're making more transparency around, more accountability on. Yeah. We're using modern data techniques to be able to actually analyze what groups of, of jobs which are more women dominated are paid less than jobs that are more male dominated. And that's often the problem is that we women are paid less sort of all the way through and then it just cycles up. Obviously it was addressed in the United States with the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act um, and this is attacking you know, federal pay gaps. But what about, what about private companies, right? Well, no, no, I think, I think one of the things to know is we're not talking about two bank tellers sitting side by side, one a woman, one a man, not being paid the same thing. That, we've already settled that. You know, women get to pay for the same jobs as much as men. But what you're talking about in pay equity is um, administrative assistants that are predominantly women in some cases yeah. or some companies versus maintenance staff that might be more predominantly men. Yeah. They might have the same value in their work, the same training to get there or the same abilities, but because they're men, the maintenance workers get paid more than women. So it's bringing the average in different jobs uh. that are dominated by women uh, versus men up to the level of the average of those jobs. Are you worried about uh, the pay gap that uh, continues in, in the private sector? I mean, we've seen some Silicon Valley companies, Salesforce for an example, address that in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. And do an internal audit and say, there's a gap and we're gonna close it. But what about here in Canada? I mean, is there a role for government, do you believe, in the private sector to close it, the pay absolutely, gap? Absolutely, absolutely. And where we have uh, a role as a federal government is over, yes, the federal public service, yeah. so government workers, but also federally regulated industries like transport or telecom or banks. So anyone in those private sectors will have to abide by this pay equity legislation. Our provinces yeah. uh, have uh, roles over other areas and there are already provinces with uh, pay equity legislation uh, that we're hoping is going to end up matching where we are. Boards. Um, the representation of women on boards, uh, whether it's in the United States or here in Canada, uh, you know, it's, it's abysmal. Women make up 48% of the Canadian workforce, only hold 14% of board seats. Um, you've introduced a bill, C25, to increase female representation on boards. And it doesn't mandate that there are a certain number of women, like we've just seen passed in California. But it seems to me, Mr. Prime Minister, tell me if this is the goal, to essentially sort of shame corporations into doing it, you nod. That's exactly it. It's it's about highlighting what m many more corporations are beginning to understand, and many more you know, shareholders and and stakeholders across across the economy are realizing that companies that have better diversity or more women on their boards yeah. tend to do better. Sure. So by uh, forcing a level of transparency and making people. Uh, actually explicitly say what their plan is to bring more women onto boards, more diversity into their boards, uh, we're going to spur people to actually act and actually realize, as more and more have done, as you've said, it's in their best interest. And if they don't, are you supportive of quotas? We, we're looking at different steps, but I think this is going to make a big step 
even over the past three years, we've seen a huge transformation in the conversations uh, at events like this Most Powerful Women Summit yeah. and uh, elsewhere where people just get it, that it, it doesn't just lead to, 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 to better decisions to have more representation. It leads to better kinds of decisions, decisions that are more long-term, more beneficial to the, 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 the community as a whole, to have uh, more thoughtful women on your board. I mean, it also adds to more profitable companies. So I'm Indeed. confounded by you know, why we are where we are today. Um, there's also something that is um, happening in Canada that a lot of people don't know about, but could be very, very important for men and women. And that is a new parental sharing benefit, mm -hmm. right? As someone who has two young children whose husband took three months paternity leave, I know how important it is. Uh, what's the goal here to get more men, dads, to take more time off work? We have, we have a, a year of maternity leave yep. uh, for mothers. But what we're also bringing in is a second parent uh, parental leave, which is basically a use it or lose it uh, five weeks for fathers or for the second parent. And what that means is, first of all, you're forcing um, people to realize that, okay, if I want these extra five weeks, I have to use them too. The second parent has to use them. You're creating more parental involvement and investment in things like changing diapers and being part of uh, a new baby's life. But you're also sending a message to employers yeah. that if they're about to hire a man or a woman in their mid-20s and they both eventually are going to start a family, both of them could take time off or will take time off mm -hmm. uh, for raising of the, uh, a new baby. So it doesn't automatically advantage the man uh, oh. in, in that dynamic. So there's a lot of impacts when you create use it or lose it second parent benefits and we're very excited about that. Did you take paternity leave? I did. Uh, with, my, uh, with my son, I, uh, I was working as a public speaker at that time so I was able to take a, 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 a few months off. Um, with my daughter, I'd just been elected as a, uh, a politician, uh, and I got a long weekend. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, with with, but the example that we've uh, shifted towards, yeah. I have one of my members of cabinet, Karina Gould, who just gave birth, uh, and she took a full um, few months mm -hmm. uh, of uh, of uh, maternal leave. Uh, that uh, we it was sort of a first we ever really had to figure out as a, as a government. And it was a really strong and positive example. More from our exclusive interview with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau after the break. When you look at, at um, sort of where, where we've come uh, in, in these years that you have been Prime Minister, having a gender-balanced cabinet, um, what has been the biggest learn? learning experience for you on, on this issue? Is there anywhere where you've said, I had these high goals, I thought if I made my cabinet equal men and women, we would achieve X and we haven't. Like, what has been the biggest stumbling block on that? Well, I think there's, there's, there's two things that I've learned, one positive, one negative. One is how eager men are to be allies uh, to women, mm -hmm. but how much um, uncertainty there is about how to do it or whether it's okay to do it. And I think one of the conversations we're seeing more and more is, is men stepping up and asking how to be allies and, and figuring out how to be better allies. And that's something that has been a positive surprise. Um, the challenge I find 
is having had a, a brought in a, a more diverse cabinet, um, we are having uh, challenges around retention now. Uh, challenges around people who are saying, wow, yeah, I came into a cabinet, I'm a minister, but the, 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 the context we're in, uh, the way politics is played is a lot more difficult. It's still the old way of doing things. We need to think about how we change the, the, the way the workplace works. And I sort you of You mean thought, the hours you have to be there or the... Hours, expectations, schedule, the work-life balance. Uh, there's, there's a whole number of, of things that are shifting. And, and uh, I'll be very clear. You have female ministers telling you that. Yes, there's pressure on this. There, no one has said they're going to leave right. if we don't change it. But there are conversations about making the, the workplace, which, quite frankly, um, you know, a parliament or elected office is one of the most grueling jobs that you have. The demands are incredible. And it's also a reflection of, of this generation, men and women, who want to be more president, present in their kids' lives, more uh, have a better quality of life, be able to better do their jobs. There's a reflection coming of not just bringing in diversity, but actually responding to the changing nature of the workplace because of that diversity, because of the demands of that Are diversity. Are you worried that if that doesn't change, that you will lose some of those female ministers? or that you won't be able to continue attracting them? I am confident we're gonna be able to make changes. What about your dad? You said something at the beginning that struck me. You said, I don't know if my dad was a feminist, former prime minister, because of the times. Mm -hmm. But what did he teach you that you think has made you a feminist and has made you take these actions? He taught me about the fundamental uh, rights of every individual. Uh, he, he brought in Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms as part enshrined in our Constitution, mm -hmm. um, individual rights and freedoms that are protected and sacrosanct. And that frame of respecting and defending people's rights, even if it's politically unpopular, or even if it's difficult and challenges the status quo, whether we're talking about uh, LGBT rights mm -hmm. or maternal rights or, or you know, broad range of things, we know, uh, I know, that Canada has thrived because we are a country that defends people's rights. Let's talk about the Me Too movement, because it's more than, than a moment. Um, this summer, you responded to allegations that you inappropriately touched a female reporter 18 years ago. You said you do not recall that, but you said you felt that you acted, uh, you did not feel that you acted inappropriately, but that you respect the fact that someone else might have experienced it differently. You have since called sexual harassment a systemic problem. Has the Me Too movement changed how you lead? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think. Uh, respecting and leaving room for uh, multiple voices and multiple experiences uh, is essential in our conversation. You know, whether it's the uh, unfounded uh, cases that get dismissed by police services uh, across uh, across our country, uh, or had been dismissed across our country, or the um, the disbelief with which. Um, a, a, a survivor uh, has, is treated when she comes forward with, with her story. We need to start from a place of support and belief and, and, and move forward in a, a way that is respectful. And that changes uh, how we engage in our workplaces, changes how we lead, it changes how we, how we treat one another, and how we become more aware of the power dynamics inherent in just about any situation. 
have you had conversations with um, with your wife, for example, about this as a leader? And have you thought about, Mr. Prime Minister, um, how you hope that this movement changes your country? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I have conversations with Sophie about it, I have conversations about, uh, with, with Cabinet about it, with, with anyone I can about how we need to make sure that anyone and everyone feels safe and comfortable and respected at home, in their workplace, uh, in government, in parliament, anywhere. Um, I think one thing a lot of people don't know about the new trade agreement, uh, USMCA, if you will, is that there's actually a chapter on gender equality in there. What does it do? We've, we've brought in stronger protections for environmental rights, labor rights, women's rights, indigenous rights uh, than, just about, than any trade deal Canada has ever signed until now. And one of the reasons we did that is because there's a lot of people worried about trade, about trade deals. We're seeing protectionist waves all around the world where yeah. people say, you know, trade ends up hurting the little guy. It doesn't help us as workers, it helps big companies. Mm -hmm. Well, being able to showcase trade deals that do focus on benefits for the middle class, mm -hmm. for people working hard to join up, for workers, for marginalized communities, for women, for indigenous peoples. This making a case for trade, because trade creates growth. It just doesn't guarantee that it gets who, shared who properly. Made, in these negotiations, who made the case for the gender part of this deal? Well, the, the entire focus of these trade negotiations was to on my end, making sure that we had something that worked for the middle class, because that's what I got elected on, but also on the president's end, making sure that you're making a case for the people who felt that the success of the United States had passed them by, people who, who didn't feel included in, in the growth of the but United I mean, States. Did you, did your team, Katie, Telford, et cetera, did, I mean, did one of you lay out, okay, there has to, this has to address gender as well? We have, we have been negotiating new progressive trade deals for a while now. It was a big part of our ability to secure a free trade deal with Europe, uh, that we had uh, you know, gender and environmental and labor protections within it. And we realized that if you're going to make a case to people of why free trade is good, you have to reassure them that it's also going to be fair. And that's how we got to be the only G7 country with free trade deals with every other G7 country. More from our exclusive interview with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau after the break. All right, let's talk a little bit about trade, okay? Sure. So, uh, the new trade deal replacing NAFTA, USMCA, is, is uh, agreed upon but not signed yet. Mm -hmm. Are you considering, Mr. Prime Minister, not signing it unless President Trump lifts the tariffs on Canadian steel and aluminum? Um, obviously, the, uh, the tariffs on steel and aluminum are uh, a continued frustration. What a tariff is, is a way of hiking prices on your own domestic consumers. Mm -hmm. So uh, consumers in the United States are paying more for Canadian steel, Canadian uh, aluminum than they otherwise would. And we've brought in retaliatory tariffs. Mm -hmm. That means Canadian consumers are paying more for bourbon, for, uh, for Heinz ketchup, for a broad range of things 
because uh, we had to retaliate. But we would much rather have genuine free trade with the United States. So we're going to continue to work as soon as we can to lift those tariffs. Uh, but we're not at the point of saying that uh, we wouldn't sign if it wasn't, uh, if it wasn't lifted, although we're but, trying to make that case. But, but Mr. Prime Minister, some see this as the moment, the moment of leverage before that potential signing date, potentially November 30th, right before there's a new Mexican government in power, that this is your moment for leverage. This is your moment where you could say, Mr. President, if you don't lift these steel and aluminum tariffs, we're not going to sign it. Any chance that happens? One of the things that served me very, very well through the 13 months of negotiations over the new NAFTA was that I don't negotiate in public. And we have strong conversations in private and we get to the right outcome for everyone. So when it comes to why uh, the steel and aluminum tariffs were put in place, as you know, uh, the argument made by uh, some of the West Wing was for national security. You called that insulting and unacceptable. Uh, have you talked to the president about that argument specifically? Um, has he apologized to you for Peter Navarro making those comments? Uh, more than that, I had a conversation with the president at the G7 in Italy uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, where he agreed with me that it would be insulting to include Canada on a list of national security concerns uh, on imported steel. I mean, our steel is in, in American armored vehicles. Our aluminum is in your fighter jets. Uh, we have been close partners for a long time. That argument has been made time and time again. Um, we're also now on an argument where uh, these tariffs are actually hurting American businesses. Mm -hmm. American workers are losing their jobs uh, because of these steel and aluminum tariffs. Uh, and we're going to continue to make arguments based on facts, not based on, on emotions or insults. Okay. So to the point about tariffs, the president said in the Rose Garden when he announced this deal, quote, without tariffs, we would not be talking about a deal. Is he right? Did tariffs force Canada's hand here? On the contrary, we have been open from the very beginning to uh, negotiate a, a new and modernized NAFTA. I mean, it's one of those things that we recognize that a 25-year-old trade deal always has ways to update it uh, for a digital economy, for uh, modern expectations, and we were able to do so that's an not awful the case. lot of that. It's not the case we that were, if there were no tariffs, you would not have. We were always willing to sit down and negotiate, and we have. One fascinating uh, thing that you've spoken about is the, the greatest lesson you learned from your father, the former prime minister. And you said once that he taught you to trust people. Do you fully trust President Trump that he will uphold his promises and not back out of deals, as we saw uh, with the G7 closing communique? What my father taught me was to trust Canadians. Uh, it was uh, a, a, a way of looking at the electorate as saying, you don't have to uh, dumb it down for them. You don't have to scare them into this or that. You can actually treat people like intelligent, rational actors, and they will rise to the occasion. And that has been my approach uh, in campaigning, in politics, from the very beginning. So President Trump is not a Canadian. Yeah, I, I recognize that Trump on every, every leader... Uh, has a job of sticking up for their own country, and they will do it in their own ways. And I uh, respect the fact that uh, uh, that people have different approaches to it. My approach uh, is to trust uh, trust Canadians and uh, deal in uh, in a way that uh, that is direct with other leaders. On China, you have said, "quote We're happy to engage with the Chinese." This is on trade, but part of USMCA uh, lays out that any of the parties can back out, walk away from the deal with six months' notice if another one of the parties starts to negotiate 
negotiate with a non-market economy. Now, translate non-market economy, everyone knows that means China. Will that stop Canada from seeking a bilateral deal with China? Uh, nothing in the USMCA uh, limits Canada's ability to negotiate trade deals uh, with anyone. Um, the uh, USMCA, like the original NAFTA, has a six-month clause. You don't even have to give a reason for it. You can announce that you want out of the, out of the trade deal at six months' notice, uh, and uh, you can walk away. That's already there. Uh, what the non-market economy clause uh, requires is a level of transparency. If we're going to negotiate with China, or if the U.S. is going to negotiate with China, they need to keep their partners apprised. Let's talk about your relationship with the president. Um, earlier this year, you said international relations often do come down to interpersonal relationships. Is all of this uh, fighting back and forth, is this all water under the bridge now between you and the president? The friendship between Canada and the United States is far deeper than that between any given president or prime minister. I have a good constructive working relationship with the president, which is what Canadians expect me to have. Mm -hmm. But the connections between Canada and the U.S. Uh, run so deep and so broad uh, that the relationship is, is going to be fine regardless of who's at the top uh, on either side. Let's talk about the election. You know, we have a big election in the United States. I heard. In the United States right now. It is election day in America. When you ran in 2015, Mr. Prime Minister, you said the leadership we need most is the leadership that brings people together. What do you make of the U.S. election right now? I make that Americans will make the choice that they need to make, that they choose to make, uh, and I will work with whichever Congress they elect, with ever, whatever president they elect, uh, whether it was two years ago or two years from now. My job is to stand up for Canada and to defend Canadian interests and to have a constructive working relationship with uh, whoever is elected in the United States. But to your point about the necessity of bringing people together, the closing argument we've seen from President Trump in the last few days, you've seen it, has been a closing argument of fear, a fear of immigrants. Um, look, during the travel ban, you tweeted, Canadians will welcome you regardless of your faith. Diversity is our strength. Welcome to Canada. What is your reaction to President Trump's closing message on immigration right now? My job is to stand up for Canadian interests and have a constructive working relationship with whoever uh, Americans choose to elect. But as someone who has spoken up for the rights of immigrants, uh, welcomed asylum seekers to this country, the president has talked about those in the caravan coming up from Central America as invaders. What do you call them? We've had in Canada a number of... Um, democratic challenges uh, mm -hmm. right here in my home province of Quebec in the separatist yeah. movement. One of the things that was really important that all Canadians on either side of the debate um, agreed on was that it was important that people outside our borders not weigh in on our own decisions. Uh, and that's uh, a principle that I learned uh, here in Quebec that I will apply to respecting people's opportunities and choices to make their own choices. You have called Canada a moose. That was your choice of animal even-tempered and strong. So what's the United States right now? My father uh, gave a, sp a speech to a joint session of Congress back in the uh, late 70s mm -hmm. where he likened uh, Canada living by the United States uh, to like a mouse sleeping next to an elephant. Uh, no matter how even-tempered the beast, you react to every twitch and grunt. Mm -hmm. um, I said, you know what? I don't think of us as a mouse. I think of us as a moose. Okay. Uh, you know, large 
present, but still massively outweighed beside the elephant. Uh, we will continue to be uh, attentive to what's going on in the United States, um, but stand securely in our own, uh, our own strength and our own approach. Uh, President Trump has, at times, spoken more critically of you, Mr. Prime Minister, uh, than he has of President Putin of Russia, Rodrigo Duterte of the Philippines, Kim Jong-un of North Korea, whom he recently called terrific, a talented negotiator, and said we fell in love. What do you think of that? My job as a politician is uh, to focus on what matters to Canadians. You don't and take that's it personally. You know, in politics, you get called a lot of things by a lot of different people, and most of the time, uh, you're just able to shrug it off, and I've gotten pretty good at that. Mm -hmm. My focus is on how to build a constructive relationship that's going to work for Canadians, and that's what I'll always do. Let me ask you about uh, the global tilt to the right that we're seeing in some elections around, around the world, from, uh, from the United States to Brazil to Italy and Hungary. Are you concerned at all that you and leaders of your ilk are becoming somewhat of an endangered species right now? I think that there is a reality that a lot of people are anxious uh, around their futures. There's a lot of anxiety for your own retirement, for your kids' futures, your kids' job. People don't know where that's going to come from in this disrupted world. And there are a lot of people out there with really easy-sounding answers. Um, what we've done here in Canada is set forward some more uh, complex but very effective answers that do bring people together, that do things like uh, give child benefits to families who can feel optimistic about their kids, uh, invest in training programs so that people can be more successful uh, in, a, in a new global economy. We have worked on not augmenting those fears, but allaying those fears, and it's working. In That's Canada. interesting, though. You say that this tilt to the right that we're seeing around the globe is, is easy answers, but not necessarily the right ones. In many cases, yeah. The free press. Uh, as you know, uh, President Trump has repeatedly referred to the free press as the enemy of the American people. This happened even after a bomb was sent to my office at CNN. Is that dangerous? I have been uh, unequivocal repeatedly that a free press is fundamental to any democracy around the world, to any free society. You have to have an informed populace uh, that uh, are, and politicians are being held to account from, uh, from media. That's why, uh, whether it's the killing of a journalist uh, in, in, the, in the case uh, of Khashoggi uh, in the uh, Saudi consulate, uh, or just standing up for uh, the important work that journalists do, I will always be unequivocal about defending journalism, uh, investing in uh, free and independent journalism as a country, uh, and that's something that I, I make, uh, make no, uh, no secret of and no, no, no bones about. So on that issue, on the killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, um, many people want to know uh, what the United States will do, and since I'm sitting with you, what Canada will do. Canada has a, a $15 billion deal to sell light armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia. You said last month Canadians expect there to be consequences for Jamal Khashoggi's premeditated murder. Will Canada cancel its arms sales? We've been working with, with the international community to try and get answers on the, on the terrible murder of Khashoggi. Um, this is something that uh, the entire world is outraged about, and we are demanding answers on it. But I, I will point out that Canada has been uh, in, in conflict with Saudi Arabia at a diplomatic level for a few months sure. now because we put out uh, a statement uh, condemning the arrest of, mm -hmm. of uh, a number of uh, pro-democracy, pro-women activists in Saudi Arabia. We will continue to 
to stand up firmly for, for human rights, while at the same time looking for ways uh, to be more transparent and more accountable in the economic choices we but make. But is there a is there a line, Mr. Prime Minister? Uh, what would it take for you to say that's it? I know it will cost Canada a billion dollars because that's the penalty for you to cancel this arms agreement. But is there a line where you get information and you just say, no, we are not doing this deal anymore with Saudi Arabia? We is it on the table? Uh, we are continuing to look at how to move forward responsibly, but the first thing is to get a level of accountability and responsibility uh, for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and then we make determinations about the next steps. So it may be on the table. It's an option? You, you look forward uh, to making the right decision based on the information you have at the time. We still expect uh, more information on that. What keeps you up at night? Um, the polarization we see uh, in Canada and around the world. People who don't listen to each other anymore. People who are so sure that they are right that um, they won't listen to anyone who disagrees and won't, uh, will even dehumanize people who disagree with them. The demonization of um, political opponents uh, is something that is fundamentally counter to the idea that diversity of opinions, of perspectives, of backgrounds should be a source of strength and resilience. Why is it happening? Many point to uh, what we're hearing from some of our own leaders, but also to the internet. I think the, the internet has, has given an amplification for voices that were always there and a, and a gathering place and a little more traction because it's a new technology that we haven't yet completely figured out how to, how to create uh, uh, safe and robust disagreements and conversations on. Um, I think it's always been easier in politics to divide people or to scare people than to bring them together. Um, I've chosen to try and bring people together, to try and look for those common grounds, to, to risk uh, you know, being vulnerable in my own core beliefs as a way of allowing someone else to come up with their core beliefs and maybe leave them be vulnerable and have us each learn from each other at the same time. I think there needs to be a better give and take, a better understanding of each other. And the fact that we are now, as we'd call in, in, in French, un dialogue de sourds, uh, uh, an argument between people who don't hear each other, um, that for me really worries me. You think the world is in an argument right now where people don't hear each other? I think there are, there are trend lines where people just do not listen to each other, and I think that's, that's worrisome. And finally, your legacy. It can't be easy to be the son of the former prime minister, to have such a famous last name and a lot of expectations. But I wonder, Mr. Prime Minister, what you think about as you think about your legacy and as you think about following your father. Um, to be quite honest, I've been Prime Minister for three years now, and the work I have to do to live up to Canadians' expectations of what a Prime Minister should be uh, vastly outweighs any lingering, you know, trying to live up to my father. But as I do think about my legacy, and I think what I would like people to look back at this moment in time for Canadians as, I would like it to be around the empowerment of individual citizens and voices, to be both in control of their economic destiny, to be in control of their community, to be in control of their future. The empowerment of citizen activists, mm -hmm. uh, of individuals who take an interest and weigh in on the world around them in positive ways, that's what we're trying to build in Canada. Well, I very much appreciate your time today on all of these topics. Thank, Thank you, you Poppy.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.